Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. North American equity markets have been relatively flat of late, following a wave of disappointing earnings this earnings season. U.S. Treasury yields have also slipped, as new data signaled a greater-than-expected economic slowdown. Today, we ask how this market environment is affecting the ETF space. Etienne Janka Bouchard, ETF strategist, joins host Brian Borsakowski today for a discussion on which factors may be favorable in the current market environment and to provide an update on the Fidelity All-in-One ETFs. Etienne shares today that the main reason All-in-One ETFs have been growing in popularity is due to its simplicity, as well as ensuring broad diversification. Among other topics, Etienne also comments on the market's ambition, expecting rate cuts, shares how not every dividend strategy is the same, and notes that high-quality names have been popular lately, as those businesses generally do well coming out of a slowdown and are able to weather inflationary pressures better. This podcast was recorded on April 20th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's start with, you know, looking at the ETF space. Clearly, it's been a volatile year, up and down markets. How has the ETF space fared so far? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, so far, I guess most of the volatility has been to the upside. So I guess for for most investors, this has been a bit of a relief rally. And, uh, you know, obviously with challenging conditions last year, both in the fixed income and in the equity space, I think was more than a welcome sight. And we saw that from a flows standpoint, if you will, in the ETF industry. So really strong buying so far to start the year. We've seen about $10.6 billion in net new assets enter the Canadian ETF industry this year. To put that into perspective, all of last year was around $35 billion, which actually was the third best year in history for ETFs. And I think this year we're well on our, well on our way. You know, obviously all things else, all else equal to go and beat that. There's a few definitely standouts, you know, from from different categories. Uh, it's all almost an even split, if you will, among equities and fixed income. One of the main categories that we're tracking last year, which had been increasingly popular, was the high interest savings segment, which was up nine billion last year, and we've seen another two point seven, if you will, in the first quarter of the year here come in. You know, some other things that we've noted, for example, international equities, uh, which was kind of a bit in the doghouse, if you will, over the past couple of years. And I'd say historically, with with, you know, the advisors that I've worked with across the country is an underweight allocation, right, compared to, say, an MSCI World Index. If you have a benchmark equity portfolio, you know, and that MSCI World Index is maybe 25, 30 percent, while in, you know, in most portfolios would be less than 10. So uh, you're seeing a bit of a a buying spree there, uh, selling of U.S. equities uh, for, you know, there's a few reasons tied to that. We can get into it a bit later. Last point, I guess I'll make uh, more recently in March, we actually saw a lot of dip buying in the financial sector. So sector specific ETFs, bank ETFs, financials just broader 
kind of a, a dip buying there, if you will, following kind of the mini banking crisis we saw in the U.S., as well as the volatility uh, that arose from the Credit Suisse and uh, UBS merger. So a bit of everything. But so far, it's been a really, really solid year in terms of uh, flows in the ETF industry. So we'll, we'll explore some of that in a minute, but I, but it's always amazing to me that the ETF space in Canada continues to do well, even in times of volatility. Why do you think that is? Are, are people figuring out, uh, investors figuring, just continuing to figure out the benefits of ETFs? Why does it keep sort of getting these big, big months when everything seems to be crazy around it? You know, I think that there's a few reasons for that, right? The vehicle itself, right? Going back to kind of the, the real, the basics I think the ETF vehicle is shown now through various periods, its resilience and its uh, utility, if you will. So the fact that you can trade it throughout the day, I think that that use case is is still very strong. You know, if you look at pricing, you know, the average ETF price generally is lower, albeit let me you know, be very clear. If you're buying an ETF that's 10 basis points, it's also because you're not getting any management to it. Right. It's more of a passive man- uh, mandate. But that, you know, that whole fee discussion continues to be there. So it's important to, to know what you own. But generally speaking, you are able to get, you know, cheaper options. And lastly, it's just the tools that are there. So that, you know, asset managers like Fidelity uh, and, and others, you know, creating these investment vehicles that are, are either very specific or actually really good in portfolio construction. So the best example I could give is with the financials ETFs or, you know, sector specific ETFs I was mentioning. If you're an investor that saw this kind of widespread, you know, even sell off, if you will, across the entire banking uh, sector in the U.S., for example, but in reality, we we were kind of figuring out that it was more of a, not a systemic risk, but more of an idiosyncratic risk of you know risk management. But everything got sold off. Well, you don't want to buy maybe SVB on the dip, but maybe you want to buy the whole basket because everything got sold off. So I think it's just ease of use, also some really just great tools. So it's a combination of a lot of things. But you know we've seen it with the flows. It's it's very resilient. So to dig into some of those trends, the bond side, you know, it has been interesting. Lots of money is going to bonds. What are you seeing when you kind of dig into that uh, asset class where those flows are going? Yeah, so about half, once again, like for the $5.4 billion that's gone into bonds this year, about half of that has gone into cash alternatives. So think just really no duration. Think of it as, a, you know, almost cash-like, if you will, and collecting, collecting some income there. On, on, if you dig a bit deeper on the other 2.7, you know, one category that's definitely increased is the long-term bonds. So you're seeing some duration being added, I think, in, in some portfolios as we've seen the yield curve start to trend downwards. Obviously, the short end is still very high because central banks have either just stopped hiking or, you know, they're on their way to, for example, with the Federal Reserve. So you're seeing a bit of buying or adding some duration, which, you know, if we look at the portfolios that, that, that we have here at Fidelity, you know, that is something that, that we're doing actively in the portfolios right now. So increasing credit quality a little bit, increasing duration. And uh, it seems to make sense to reduce reinvestment risk, which is one thing that we're a little bit worried about for, for those that are very short duration right now, albeit that might have served a very good purpose last year as, as we were in a rate hiking environment. As we see yields start to come down, you're not only going to miss out on potential capital gains, but also the diversification effect that you get with longer durations when equities are volatile, right? So if we do, if we are in this kind of late cycle recessionary environment, it you know duration has usually been your friend. So that's you know a few reasons why I think that trend is likely to continue. So potentially more selling of the short term stuff, eventually going into long term. Uh, albeit, you know, a lot of investors still have that sour taste in their mouth, if you will, from last year with, you know, the the interest rate risk was the biggest risk and not so much credit, for example. 
So yeah, so you're seeing the the, the outflows on the short term side. They're pretty big, and I guess you can see that movement into the long term based on where the flows are going. Yeah, so basically the short-term bond mandates, like actual short-term bonds is down about 1 billion, while the long-term uh, bond mandates are up 1.4. But at the same time, cash alternatives are also raking in a bunch of, of flows. So it's very contradicting where I think there's still some investors that are just not ready to go back into the market, the bond market. But those that are in, you know, are, are positioning themselves for the long-term are locking in, you know, longer duration bonds to capitalize on returns that'll help you out in five, 10 years. And not just thinking about, oh, I can get 4% on a three month T-bill now. Well, if I can get 3% on my 10 years or three and a half percent on my 10 years for that duration, that's generally gonna be a better outcome because once those come, uh, you know, the, the short-term stuff comes to maturity, maybe bond yields are lower by then. Hey, you mentioned international. Is there any, you know, insight into the data as to where internationally funds are going and, and why at the expense of the US do you think? So international, like I was mentioning kind of that in that in that very brief intro at the beginning, has historically been a, a fairly strong underweight, if you will, to to portfolios. And some of the reasons for that was, you know, just earnings growth, right? Like if you looked at US earnings growth over the past decade, it's been significantly higher than it has been in say international developed markets like Europe or Japan. So, you know, there was a there's a valuation premium that was paid for US stocks. You know, right now, let's say approximately, once again, uh, US markets trading about 18 times, international markets trading about 13 times. And so that five, say, PE discount that you're seeing is about double the 20 year average, which is around two, two and a half. So now we're seeing a, a place where that valuation gap has existed in the past. Like you usually pay more for your US equities because of the growth component, but now it's at a point where it is very sizable. And I think investors in general last year had a lot of reasons to avoid international. So maybe there was, and there actually was some selling over there because of all the geopolitical risk that you had. You also had, uh, you know, inflation risk, which is still, you know, if you look at the UK, is still significantly higher than it is here, for example, because of the, the, their cost of energy. Those were significant risks. But I think as we're starting to see earnings come out uh, and we start to look ahead, maybe we were a little bit too bearish and there might be some opportunities in those regions. And I think it's, it's, it's very broad based. So you're seeing buying of passive stuff, buying the index as a whole, but you're also seeing factor ETFs like the ones that we have here, like buying high quality international stocks, which, you know, display above average margins kind of maybe will navigate this, you know, uh, I guess, how could I say this impasse, if you will, between, going on a, a, a stronger rally or just actually mitigating some of the downside risk. So you mentioned factory ETFs and you know, that's uh, why we always bring you on here to, to talk a bit about factors, but it's always worth repeating uh, a little bit about what factors are, because it's not always the easiest concept to understand. And uh, so, so tell us a bit before we kind of move on and talk about what, what factors you're looking at, what are factory ETFs? Yeah. So what we're trying to do, and, and I guess to the simplest explanation I can give is we want to select stocks based on fundamental criterias that drive performance. So when you think about it, a pure passive ETF, what you're really doing is you're picking stock based on market cap. So the only, if you will, metric or characteristic that you look at is the size of a business. If Apple's the biggest company in the US, then you're going to have the highest weight to that uh, stock and you go all the way down to the smallest company. 
you know, what we found over time, especially with our active management at Fidelity, which is the other spectrum, right? So you got passive, let's say active, and then we'll get the factor, which is in the middle. But active, we, you know, there's so many great managers at Fidelity, for example, that have outperformed and managed to do that, outperformed their benchmarks and managed to do that consistently over time. And, you know, it, the, the, the basis of the thesis for factor investing is say, well, what do they look at? You know, what characteristics do they use to evaluate a business to differentiate it from one another? Is it profitability? Is it uh, leverage? Is it valuation? All these different things. And then, you know, you build these models to say, okay, well, if we pick stocks based on, once again, let me go back to quality as an example, based on the return on invested capital, based on the free cash flow margin, the stability of those profits. If we pick stocks in a big index and funnel it down to a certain amount of names, which is approximately 100 top decile, do these stocks in the long term add value? So are they better investments than just buying the broad index? And what we found is, generally speaking, yes. And we can apply this for various different investment styles or factors. So quality is one, value is one. So buying cheaper stocks on average tends to help. Uh, low volatility, if you buy companies that display lower betas, lower standard deviation in their earnings, they also tend to outperform the higher beta stuff over the long term. And all these different things that we can put together and create these really sophisticated products that allow us to, yes, you buy an ETF. Yes, you can get a cost reduction because it's, I guess, a model that's run and not an active manager on it. But we can still give you the ability to outperform in the long term. And just just to on the point sort of the between the active and the passive, how, how do the you know do the uh, fidelity ETFs, factory ETFs, do they change based on different environments, or you know how are you adding and taking stocks or bonds out of them? What we try to do to make sure that the models remain dynamic, but also don't have like crazy turnover where the fees just get out of control, right? Because if we'd let it run on a daily basis you might get a lot more turnover. So what we do is we have set rebalancing periods where we kind of rerun the script, if you will. So let's say, you know, you ranked your 100 best stocks based on the three quality characteristics I gave. And, you know, you do it every six months to say, well, maybe things have changed. Maybe some sectors have become higher quality. Best example of that is our Canadian and US high quality ETFs actually went, you know, overweight energy last August. Well, why is that? Uh, well, it's because the return on invested capital and the free cash flow that was being generated in that sector was at a cycle high, right? So the last time we actually had an overweight to that sector was pre-great uh, financial crisis, right? So these things adapt to current conditions uh, to make sure that you're, but you're always getting, you know, the desired exposure. The names might be different. The, the sectors might be different. But it's always going to be highly profitable businesses or with value. It's always going to be cheap businesses. It's not going to change from value to growth. It's right. You know, you know what you're going to get. And that's kind of the fun thing about it. Uh, so it's easier to understand when building them in portfolios sometimes. So it's always, you know, the companies are important, but really it's the characteristics that are even more important than sort of the names themselves. Don't don't get attached to, to names. <laughs> Right. Because some but but that being said, there's some factors that have a lot more turnover, like, for example, momentum as a factor that one rebalances quarterly because what is getting better, which is basically what we're trying to do with momentum is to capture positive change. So we're trying to find companies that either their earnings are trending upwards, their price is trending upwards, but that can change fairly rapidly. So, you know, I, I'd, I'd say it depends on the mandate, depends on the market also, because when you do see volatility in the market, you will get more turnover than if it's just kind of a status quo type, uh, you know, if you will, zigzag market. Like we actually saw like in Q4 last year, our February rebalancing period for our ETFs uh, was actually quite low turnover relative to history. You know, so, so today's economic picture is 
Uh, you know, no one, no one's no, knows what's going to happen next. But we've seen, um, you know, Bank of Canada pauses rates for two times in a row. I'm not sure what the Fed's going to do next. But, you know, we've seen CPI maybe coming down here, a good sort of lower read, headline read this past week. So how does that, you know, economic factors impact, let's say, rebalancing and then impact maybe the factors that people might want to consider for their portfolios? Absolutely. That's a, it's going to have to be a long-winded answer here for you, Brian. So the first, first thing is, is factors tend to be very cyclical. So let's just, you know, just thinking about that in, in that framework is that certain things do well at certain phases. Some things don't do well. Like when we're in a late cycle slash recessionary phase, like we feel we are in now, factors like quality and low volatility tend to do better. On the flip side, when you're in the early cycle, value tends to do better. And, you know, given what we've seen recently and looking at things like, for example, manufacturing PMIs and you look at services PMIs, you see inflation is starting to roll over. These are some signs that the economy is is entering a slowing phase, not to say that it's going to go into uh, uh, you know, a full apocalyptic uh, crash mode. That's not what we're obviously calling for. But to say that there's going to be a modest slowdown, I think is very fair. Uh, and we're starting to see it from an earnings growth standpoint. Whereas, you know, revenues, revenue growth has stayed fairly positive uh, to start the year, but you're seeing profits come down. So margins are actually under pressure. And that's typically normal that we see that after an inflationary period. So you know, that leads us to point to certain mandates saying, okay, well, maybe these are better positioned for this current environment, like high quality, and I'm mentioning, I feel like I've said it already 10 times, but uh, high quality stocks have definitely been in focus for us just to try to find those businesses that are going to weather those inflationary pressures better, that are going to be able to generate cash and reinvest it in a more difficult environment, right? Because a lot of the times the companies that do the best coming out of a slowdown are the ones that were able to capitalize on those that didn't do well. So whether that's through, you know, M&A and things like that, or it's just because they were able to invest and, you know, invest, put CapEx into the business, if you will, instead of just cutting costs to stay afloat, et cetera, right? So it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of the year shapes out. Obviously, with inflation starting to come down, I think that's a positive sign just in general. But the market, you know, from, from, from what I've noticed is maybe a little bit too optimistic on where rate cuts are going to. Uh, when rate cuts are going to happen. I think in the U.S. right now, up until December, there's about three that are priced in. In Canada, it's fairly similar. Unless inflation, you know, stays, you know, or inflation comes down very fast, you're probably not necessarily going to see that right away. So we'll see. It's going to be interesting. That is, that is a, I will say that is a common theme among the uh, Fidelity uh, managers that I've uh, spoken to is the, optimi uh, the optimism of the market of the rate cuts may be too optimistic, but... Um, oh. Good. <laughs> good. So I'm not completely in the uh, in the open out there. Okay, good. <laughs> I did one of the factors that uh, you know dividend is a factor. Uh, you mentioned high quality. Where have you seen inflows into dividend ETFs? Are people still getting more defensive, even if sort of things may be sort of settling down from from a rate hike and inflation perspective? You know, looking at some of the flows data, uh, it was actually one of the only factors that was receiving sizable inflows so far this year. It's about 750 million uh, in net new assets. So, you know, almost close to 10% of all ETF flows, right? So pretty solid. And there's a few reasons for that. I think, first of all, we Canadians tend to really like dividend paying stocks. It's something that we've been accustomed to. It's a way to at least control total return a little bit, right? At least if you're getting a, a, a strong dividend yield, it maybe offsets years where price changes uh, occur. Also is, you know, when you're not too sure where equity markets are going, which is 
kind of the base case right now. Whereas with bond markets, we're fairly positive. Equity markets, we're not so sure. Well, at least you're getting paid to wait uh, type thing. And valuations, generally speaking, for dividend stocks is actually quite interesting, and at least in the way that we construct them. And this is where, uh, to your, answer your question of like what types of dividend strategies are being bought, it, it, there's, a, there's a bit of everything. Because, uh, you know, you can have a dividend growth strategy where that's much closer to the growth spectrum than it is to the value spectrum, whereas ours is more yield focused. So it brings you closer to the value spectrum. So if you are buying dividend ETFs or dividend funds even, it's important to understand exactly what type of dividend strategy you're getting because some of them some of them are more low vol, some of them are more growth. Just to know what you're buying, but generally speaking, given where bond yields are, you know, I, I'd say my 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 base case would be saying that technically that's not really where you want to be adding volatility if you can get sufficient income from your bonds. I mean, a lot of there was a lot of dividend buying when rates were at zero. I'm not so sure when they're at you know say four percent. Uh, so four and a half percent. Are these factory ETFs like fully invested all the time or are there times where they're holding cash? Fully invested all the time. Obviously there's advantages and disadvantages to that, right? So you're obviously, if you're an active manager, you have the flexibility to add cash. If you feel that, you know, there's some volatility coming or you want to wait and take advantage of some, you know, you take some gains and just kind of wait for some opportunities to show up. Um, and that's actually a great example between say, our dividend ETFs versus, say, some of our dividend funds at Fidelity, where the manager on those can hold some cash and can protect a bit better to the downside. Whereas given we're fully invested, maybe our yield's going to be a bit higher, but maybe you get a bit less downside capture. So once again, it just comes back to that idea of knowing what you own. But definitely in our ETFs, it's always fully invested. In terms of you know, advisors watching this and, and wondering how they can incorporate factors into their client portfolios. How do you see or recommend uh, people use these factors? Is it watching the market and moving in and out, uh, depending on where things are going or being invested in all of them? How do you approach this? It really depends on the on the practice that you run. And I know that sounds like a very boring and general question, but our answer, excuse me, but it really does. And I, what, I guess what I could, you know, argue is just the different ways I've seen advisors use this. And, you know, the first one is a strategic exposure to a given factor. Like you want to have value stocks as an exposure all the time. So you include that, you know, there's going to be periods that underperforms, there's periods going to outperform. But for the long term, one, it's going to help to diversify versus maybe other things in the portfolio. And long term, you believe that, you know, like I was mentioning, we've got, you know, obviously backtested data, but, you know, academia would also say this, that value tends to add alpha over time. That's maybe one way. So strategic exposure. The second would be tactical and kind of what you were alluding to going through the cycle. You're, you're okay. What is going to be doing well now? And that's, you know, a lot of the work that we do is around trying to figure that out. Uh, and it's very challenging, uh, right? There's a full team of, of, of quantitative analysts that we have in Boston. We have some here in, in uh, Toronto and myself in Montreal, for example. And we're trying to figure this out. And it is quite challenging and tough to implement. So one of the things that we like to recommend instead of saying tactical, well, maybe you do a pairing, right? So things that have low correlations to each other, like quality and value or uh, momentum and dividend, for example. Um, so those Factors can be complementary. And then the last way is just like you mentioned, buying all of them. Uh, and that's where our all-in-one ETFs come uh, come into play, which are ETFs we launched about two years ago, which are an equal weight approach uh, to the four uh, main factors, which are momentum, low vol, 
value and quality. So those four packaged together, we rebalance them for you, kind of keep them fairly static in nature where, where we want equal exposure. And then we rebalance once a year. So those, I think, solutions uh, can play a really nice role for those that like this kind of investment style, but don't want to be making the calls uh, in the short to medium term. The all-in-ones, it's interesting. Those type, that structure where you have everything in one ETF, not, not just sort of the fidelity offerings, but broadly in the ETF space have done really well. Like what have you seen and why do you think that's becoming a much more attractive ETF option than maybe buying individual ones? Multi-asset ETFs or, you know, uh, asset allocation ETFs, right? Uh, th that category has done uh, very well uh, over the past couple of years. And it's a category that's only really existed for like about six, seven, you know, six years. Most of the products like us, for example, have less than five-year track record. But it's get, it, you know, it, it's growing in popularity and for a few reasons. The first one being, I think, simplicity, uh, right? So you have... Uh, you're an advisor and you've got a bunch of small accounts or, you know, even large accounts that you want to use this as a core. But we, I've seen it used a lot as, you know, you've got these accounts that you don't want to necessarily include in a in a very like multiple line model, very broken down with stocks, bonds, you know, funds, ETFs, etc. Here you can use this as a very good core and you can bolt on a few different things around it or use it as a single line if your investors are comfortable with that. Because in reality, you're owning about, you know, ours, you'll have about 2,500 underlying holdings. Like you are fully diversified with these with these portfolios. So that's definitely one of the reasons. And the main reason, I think, is just simplicity and making sure that you have this broad diversification that rebalances, simplifying the lives of the advisors, but then also ensuring and, and I guess, trusting a partner like Fidelity to properly manage the, the complete package. And there are different, maybe I just talk about the, the, the offerings uh, quickly, just there's different kinds you get, you know, with bonds, stocks, different, different uh, allocations there that you can get based on, uh, you know, your client needs. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we actually have four different options available. And these are for, uh, I guess, a, a very important point I should be making right now. For the most, most of our ETFs that we've been talking about today, and especially the all-in-ones, yes, they're available as ETFs, direct tickers, but we also have Series B and Series F mutual fund versions, right? So don't think uh, that you don't have your ETF uh, license or you're not IROC licensed, for example, that you can't use these in your client portfolios. So to go back to the all-in-ones, we have four versions. Uh, the conservative having 60% fixed income, balanced is 60-40, uh, so 60 equity, 40 fixed income. We got a growth, 85-15, and then 100% equity mandate, which is basically just the factor side. Whereas on the, the ones that do have fixed income, we combine that with our systematic Canadian bond mandate and our global core plus bond mandate, which is actively managed also. So it's a fairly unique offering actually versus our peers, which are almost all passive based. And so far it's really paid us dividends from a performance and also a risk standpoint. And just on the turnover, uh, you, you, so the factors themselves, ETFs turnover, as you said, some quarterly, some, uh, you know, in a different schedule, but then they also get rebalanced in the all-in-one ETFs annually. I just want to make sure I got that right. So there's a, so there's a bunch of different rebalancing going on there. Oh yeah. There's a lot of stuff going on under the hood. Uh, what's important is that it, we're always trying to respect the initial risk profile. Uh, so not only do we rebalance annually, and then obviously all the underlying stuff has got their own schedule, but uh, we also have deviation limits where if you start with a 60-40 and then all of a sudden you're at 65% equity, we will do an ad hoc rebalancing to bring you back to that mix uh, to make sure that your investors don't deviate from their risk profiles. And at the end of the day, that's also another uh, big, I guess, um, thing that comes into play is these portfolios really help when you have a target profile for a client. 
it's easier to have one line than to have 15 lines and then you, you have to rebalance four or five different things uh, at the end of every quarter because now it's going out of whack versus their risk profile. So that also helps on that front, not just only on the portfolio management side, but also on the risk management side. Great. And, and just we have a couple of minutes left. I'm wondering sort of from a broader economic picture, what are some of the things that you might be looking at now to say, hey, I don't know, things are turning the corner or moving into a different cycle or what are you, what are you watching, um, especially as someone who is involved in these factors and they can do different things in different markets. What are you looking at now economically? There's a few things. First, I think honestly is looking at just more of the, I know it's not maybe so much from the macro picture, but looking at earnings, like uh, the fundamental earnings picture, I think is, you know, we said that markets may be a bit, I guess, overly ambitious on rate, expecting rate cuts. I think it's a little bit the same thing on the consensus, consensus earnings growth prospects, which this year is at around minus 1.4%. If I, the last time I looked for the S&P 500, that seems fairly good, right? Like if we go through, a, 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 say, an economic downturn, and we only have 1% drop in earnings, heck, that's going to be close to a record. So that's one thing I'm watching out for. I mean, inflation, yes, has come down quite sharply, if you will, over the past couple of months. Does that continue in throughout the summer? There might be a bit of seasonality, obviously, to, to certain things. And then from, from a macro standpoint is obviously, uh, we talked about international equities. Does, is the worst kind of behind, behind us, if you will, for, for, for us investors, but then for Europeans in, in their economy, they're still fighting that inflation fight a little bit more than we are. And uh, that thing that's gonna have an impact on commodity markets, especially as we go through the end of the year. So those are some of the things I'm watching out for, but obviously there's probably a couple others that I can't think of. <laughs> yeah, lots. Lots going on. Um, okay, um, great. We will leave it there. Um, thank you so much for doing this and uh, looking forward to the next chat uh, when it comes up. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm Brian Borzakowski. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.